This is Invest Talk. Independent thinking, shared success. Justin Klein and Steve Peasley stand ready to take your finance and investment questions and share their unbiased answers. Invest Talk is made possible by KPP Financial, a registered investment advisor firm serving clients throughout the United States. The clarity for your path forward starts now. Here is KPP Chief Executive Officer, Financial Advisor, Justin Klein. Good afternoon, fellow investors, and welcome back to Invest Talk. This is our Friday, January 12th, 2024 edition. And it's Friday. You made it. You made it to the end of the week. Happy Friday to everybody. And Luke made it as well. You made it through the week, Luke. Congratulations. Thank you, Justin. Well, we're excited for this hour to close out this week and to help you become a better investor, bringing you insights developed over 20 plus years of investment experience, uh, as well as data that will help you make good decisions with your money. I'm host Justin Klein, and we're going to talk about the market performance today. We're also going to run down some show topics, but we know you love those calls. So we're going to hit our first caller question now. I was calling about uh, SWK, Stanley Black & Decker. I was looking to start a position on it. Just wanted to know uh, how you guys feel about it. And uh, great job on the show. Thank you. All right, looking at Stanley Black & Decker. Luke, this is one of those names that I've I've been kind of like, kind of noodling around in my mind for a little while now, to be honest. Uh, this is a, a, a company that historically has very strong profitability, very strong profitability, uh, with a return equity historically kind of averaging in the high teens. You know, yeah, we dipped down uh, during the financial crisis and that recession into the single digits, but for most of the last thirty years or so. The return equity has been between 15 and 20% most years. So that tells you it's a very profitable name. But currently, its return on equity is negative. And it only happened, the last time that happened was in 1997. And the stock has taken a beating due to that drop in profitability, all the way from a high of 220 and change down to 95 and change right now. So... The question is, will, will there be a reversion to the mean here where pre-pandemic they were making $8 per share? Last year, they're supposed to make full year $1.32 and this year $4.46. So to me, it kind of looks like that reversion to the mean is starting. Uh, have you have you taken a look at this? I haven't before the caller, uh, caller question came up, but I do notice they have quite a bit of debt, mm-hmm. about 7 Seven eight billion debt on a fourteen fifteen billion market cap company. They have quite a bit of short interest at three point three percent. So people still uh, don't see that this is a uh, fair valuation for this company. But their cash flow has started to improve over the past year. Um, you know, I I think I don't think reversion to the mean is always always destiny. Uh, I think that sure. dynamics can change, and yeah. the 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 fair uh, profitability figure can change as well. Is this the case? I don't know. But I think either way, if I already own this company, I'd probably hold it at this price. But I don't know if I'd enter a new position here. Yeah, there's the, the certainly examples of the past where 
business models get disrupted and suddenly this their business is not nearly as profitable. BlackBerry is a good example, right? iPhone came along and BlackBerry has never recovered. Now the question with Stan, with Stanley Black and Decker, Decker is, you know, can they get back on their feet? Are they getting disrupted from cheap knockoffs overseas? You know, I think that's that's a that's a question here, uh, and and others within the the space that uh, have targeted mainly the professional, and uh, Stanley Black and Decker historically has also had a, a big footprint in the consumer. So overall, I I think I come out that there will be a reversion to the mean here, but the technicals are not quite lining up yet. It, it peaked back in August. And had another large pullback from 103 all the way to 77. And now we're back to 92. So, you know, I don't see the technicals really breaking out to a level that makes me get excited about it. Now, I will say if we can break out to new highs above, say, 105, that would give me a lot of confidence that this is reverting to the mean. And analysts are a bit mixed. Uh, They continue to downgrade this year's earnings while upgrade upgrade fourth quarter earnings. So uh, certainly a name to keep a, 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 an eye on uh, for that breakout. And if if that happens, then I think you can jump on. All right, now we have about 40 minutes left in today's show. And that means there's a lot of time to cover what's on the docket for us. And that is, what is the total cost of owning an ETF? What are the ETF holding costs? What are things like securities lending that can add or subtract? And we also have other topics. One is in regards to the Bitcoin ETF. It's big news this week. The question for everyone out there is, is this a ringing endorsement from the SEC? And what is that impact going to be on the broader crypto market? Also, bank earnings, Luke, came out today, and we're going to dig into the details and see what that means for the consumer or what message they're sending about the consumer. And then lastly, the BTFP program is actually set to wind up this year. This is the Alphabet Soup program, Alphabet Soup program that was launched during the banking crisis in the spring. And in many ways, banks are gaming it. So we're going to look at that story as well. We also have some voice bank questions. One is about value stocks. The other is AGM, Federal Agricultural Mortgage Corp. Now, as we go to a break, let me remind you to check out our new Invest Classroom series. It is streaming now for free on our YouTube channel. It's titled How to Prioritize Savings. And Luke and I break down things like the 40-30-20-10 rule. So just head over to YouTube and check out our YouTube channel to search Invest Talk. Now the phone lines are open, waiting for your questions at 888 chart Every investor is working to build a secure financial future. Would this be an opportune time to get into annuities? Everyone's situation is different. Get your thoughts on CRM, Salesforce. And so are their questions. And I was just calling for your assessment of Blackstone Incorporated. To get your take on QE. Ticker symbol L-E-C-O. Just wanted to get your opinion on... 
J.P. Morgan. Invest Talk hosts Justin Klein. You know, I'm okay paying a fair price for a very good business. Steve Peasley. It's a very well-run company. And now Luke Guerrero. Even to growth is significantly higher than its competitors. Are ready to provide their unbiased answers. Each podcast is unique and you set the agenda. I will. Hey, hi, Steve. 24-7, rain or shine, InvestTalk is made better by the power of you. Call 888-99-CHART. Your objective is to work hard, plan well, and achieve financial freedom, right? You're in luck. Because Justin Klein is here now, ready to take your finance and investment questions. Call 888-99-CHART. All right, now let's pivot over to what the market did today, Luke. As we closed this week, we had bank earnings and it was a decidedly mixed day. Small caps certainly underperformed, large caps did hang in there as we closed the day. Uh, the big story in my mind, though, was Bitcoin did reverse in a big, big way. What did you see? Yeah, Bitcoin did reverse, which uh, I think uh, you and I certainly expected. Maybe a lot of more people than, than will admit it expected as well. Uh, but I think a lot of uh, the headline today was surrounding dis- disinflation. So headline PPI unexpectedly declined. Core PPI came in cooler. And uh, that was on the back of a CPI print that came in slightly slightly hotter. Uh, other than that, I think investors were digesting the first of what will be many corporate earnings announcements. Obviously, a lot of people look at banks as a harbinger for what is to come in the economy, not just for their forward-looking projections, but also what they're doing uh, with their workforce going forward. So I think there were a lot of uh, a lot of things coming in from very different directions that people had to digest. Overall, you know, the S&P 500 closed pretty flat on the day, and the Russell 2000 was down modestly, uh, small caps down modestly compared to what has been happening the rest of the week. Yeah, and overall, we had an up week, though. It was a positive week, and we closed for the year so far. We're in positive territory after, obviously, closing last week in modestly negative territory. Uh, we talked about Bitcoin reversing a lot of those Bitcoin sympathetic companies uh, like Marathon Digitals and Digital and Riot platforms. Those are down double digits. You also had some of the tech names down, especially in the EV space. Tesla down 3.6%. Lucid Motors down nearly 8%. Ford was down 2% as well. Neo down 3%. Those were some some big losers. The big gainers, though, today, kind of uh, on the piggyback of, uh, did we talk about uranium yesterday? Was that yesterday? That was yesterday. Yeah, and uh, uranium was up big today on the back of the uh, news that uh, the production out of uh, Kazala, I always fumble the name, Kazalaprom. Uh, it's the largest uranium uh, producer uh, in Europe, and that came in lower than expected. So a lot of those names uh, were higher, so that certainly helped. Uh, gold was up. Gold was up on, I, I think it was the inflation data. Interesting enough, you know, most people think infl- you have inflation or lack of it. If you have inflation, that means gold prices are higher. But usually it's actually the opposite because what happens is if inflation surprises the downside, it allows the Fed to uh, loosen policy, right? Um, sooner become a, a little bit more scared of that, that deflationary impulse. So uh, you saw gold up today. 
and the dollar that was flat. So very interesting to see gold uh, up in the midst of a pretty much flat dollar. So that was the market for today. Now on Fridays, they generally make time to fit in a quick rundown of some key benchmarks of the two-year yield at about 4.16 down from last week, which is at 4.38%. So what you can see is the market continued to price throughout this week because of the CPI number and the PPI number today that the Fed will be cutting sooner rather than later and, 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 and uh, in a more intense manner, shall we say. Uh, and the market kind of priced that in. The 10-year yield that did dip back below the 4% number was at 4.03% last week, 3.96% close of this week. Gold at $2,047 per ounce, up slightly from the close last week at $2.45. Silver actually down from last week slightly from $2,239 to $23.18. Oil was up. Uh, that was other than the news that we didn't talk about over the, uh, we, I think we mentioned it on yesterday's show, was the attack on the Houthis, uh, and that escalated the potential tensions within the Middle East, and that pushed oil up $75.82 per barrel at the close of the week, up from seventy three seventy four last week. Gas prices, they did tick down a penny on a national basis from three oh eight to $3.07. Here in California, they took down even more from 470 to 459. So good news, Luke. We, what, if we have to fill up, it's going to be a bit cheaper here in California. In Iowa, where the Iowa caucuses is that this week as next week, right? I don't know if it's this week or next week. I hope it's not this week because there's some really bad storms going through there. Yeah, I know it's. Uh, I think the weather, the the weather uh, forecast there is something like negative 26 degrees with the wind chill factor on the day. Yeah, it's supposed, to be, it's supposed to be negative five for the Miami Dolphins-Kansas City Chiefs game. Wow. Yeah, so uh, definitely a cold snap uh, across most of the country. Uh, but in Iowa, gas prices are only $2.74 per gallon. Now let's, let's see if we can squeeze another caller question in now. Hello, Steve and Justin. This is Ray from Ohio. I'd like to have your opinion on medical trust properties, MPW. Thank you. Bye. I guess we can. Our sound guy, Jorge, he uh, came through real quick. Uh, this one's very simple. I've been talking about this for a while. This is the perfect example of chasing the yield. Everyone's out there looking at, uh, at MPW, and they're looking at a huge yield, 17.5%. When you see that yield, run for your life. That's what exactly you should have been doing these entire last two years. I've been getting calls constantly, but this is, this is a REIT, and they are doing their best to destroy their entire company by lending to their two largest, I think there's two of their three largest uh, 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 tenants who are themselves in major financial trouble. And that has driven their balance sheets to the brink of potential bankruptcy. Uh, and this, this is not a safe yield. This yield is going to go away. It's going to end at some point. And the entire company might end as well. This has gone from $24 at the end of 2021 down to $3.43. I've been continuing to tell you to run away and I continue to do so. So stay away from MPW. 
Yeah, we're heading into a break, so give me a call now at 888 always made better when our listeners contribute their questions. So tell your friends and family members they can interact in real time with Steve Peasley and Justin Klein during the Invest Talk live stream program between 4 and 5 p.m. Pacific time. Or they can leave their questions anytime 24-7 in the Invest Talk voice bank. Remember, for live or recorded questions, the number never changes. 888-99-CHART. Now, our main focus point today concerns the question about what the total cost of owning an ETF is. And there are holding costs and and transaction costs, so fees are really just a small part of the equation. Now, Justin, I think a lot of people, when they look at ETFs and they look at mutual funds and they look at investments, they think about what they're investing in from the perspective of what that fund does. Is it a small cap fund, a value fund? And what they're not really thinking about is the other side of the equation, which is how much does it cost to own this ETF? And so, you know, when I was working in the mutual fund ETF industry, we used to talk about costs as implicit and explicit. The explicit costs being the management fees, the things that you know about, the things you can see on paper, they're in the prospectus. And the implicit costs being the cost of trading and, and turnover. So this is, this is really an interesting way to look at it by calling it holding costs and transaction costs. So the holding costs, you can think of as the, the fee that I mentioned, that, that management fee. You can think of the turnover to actually execute that strategy and how it goes about allocating to the asset class, be it buying a wide swath of stocks or sampling, which we'll talk about in a minute. And transaction costs is really the way I look at it. What an investor is paying to enter and exit and how that affects the fund. Yeah, I, th- I think that's underrated, especially with funds that are relatively small, is what are things like the bid-ask spread that you have to pay? How liquid is that name? This happens also within the e- the ETP uh, space, um, closed-end funds, things like that, uh, that tend to be less liquid. Most people don't really pay much attention to it. Now, if you're a buy-and-hold investor, those things don't matter too much. Uh, commissions used to be a factor, but now with pretty much every broker charging nothing for commissions, that's not really an issue. But I do think those holding costs are uh, underrated like you, you talked about. And uh, you know, with it, to, to, to run the fund, right, with all, all of that overhead uh, certainly has an impact on, uh, on the cost. So, I, I know you ran some ETFs, uh, helped run some ETFs uh, over at Dimensional Funds. Um, so why don't you talk a little bit about those additional costs beyond just the, uh, the, 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 the expense ratio. Most people just focus on the expense ratio, the yeah. annual fee. And that's certainly important. That's certainly the majority of costs. But as you said, there are others like sampling. So why don't you dig into that a little bit more? Yeah, well, I think you have to first reframe your mind into how you interpret the word costs. So most people think a cost for holding a fund would be what you're paying 
in order for someone to manage your money. But what you need to think about as a cost is really anything that detracts from the performance of that fund, right? So you have expected performance, costs that take away for it, then realized performance. So you already mentioned the fees, but the first one that's important for, I guess, certain types of investment strategies more than others is sampling. Uh, so sampling is the idea that you're trying to target some sort of area of the market. So let's say you're trying to have a market cap weighted small cap fund. And maybe your fund isn't large enough to get to all those names. Maybe not all those names are liquid enough for you to be able to enter and exit them. So while an index would say it constitutes with all those names, the fund couldn't active, act, actively purchase those names in an environment where there is friction, right? Indexes are just models in a frictionless environment, but we, we live in the real world. Yeah. So when you sample, one of the things that can drag away from expected performance is you are getting a good representative allocation of what that index has, but you're not exactly holding everything that the index has. So that's one of the things that can detract from performance. So are they, let's say, as you said, it's maybe a smaller name within that fund or within that target allocation or index is relatively illiquid, would instead they replace that with a little bit more of a larger company that is a bit more liquid also within that fund? Is that how they would do it? So think of it like this. If you have five different funds, or sorry, five different stocks that are all relatively illiquid and have the same characteristics, Mm -hmm. and you only have $100 to allocate, Mm -hmm. but they give you the same factor exposures, rather than allocating $20 each of them, you're just going to purchase one of them because it's giving you the same factor exposures, but you're not stretching yourself across things that are going to be harder to purchase or, or more expensive to purchase because- Mutual funds and ETFs, they have things called ticket charges, which is every time you go and transact, you have to pay for a transaction. So rather than incurring five ticket charges, you'd only incur one ticket charge, right? You're lowering the cost of the fund. So that's kind of the idea behind sampling. Got it. So it might be in the same sector. It might also be a value type of name, uh, but it, it uh, is larger and more liquid than some of those smaller names. So it gives you the same, a uh, similar uh, price movement and volatility mm-hmm. um, without the exact exposure, right? Yeah. yeah. Which makes it uh, potential for the returns to diverge. Um, so that's another uh, example of an additional cost that can be incurred. Are right, we heading to a break? Give me a call now at 888-99-SHARK. Let's say you've been thinking about learning a new language. Okay. Why? I mean, how would it come in handy? And where would you want to use it? Could it be that you have an upcoming international trip? Or maybe you want to connect with family members or friends from a different culture? I think you should know about Rosetta Stone. With millions of users, it's been the world's most trusted language learning program for 30 years. Rosetta Stone is available on your desktop or as an app with audio companion and the ability to download lessons offline. Rosetta Stone truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. It has a built-in patented speech recognition engine called True Accent. So as you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you pronounce words. With Rosetta Stone, you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, 
then sentences. It's an intuitive process designed for long-term retention. You really learn to speak, listen, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone is an amazing value, so your special skill set is within easy reach. You know you want to do this, so don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, InvestTalk listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off now at rosettastone.com today. At this point, I think almost everyone has heard how generative AI promises to bring us to the next industrial revolution. AI is already shaping society with an impact on daily life that echoes the transformative significance of electricity or the internet. As we take steps to embrace the potential of generative AI, we need to remain vigilant with regard to its exploitability. This is where HackerOne comes in. HackerOne's AI Red Team addresses the novel challenges of AI safety and security for businesses that are launching new AI deployments. The HackerOne approach involves targeted offensive testing by harnessing the collective skills of ethical hackers who are proficient in AI and prompt hacking. In short, AI red teaming is the practice of stress testing AI models and deployments to make sure they can't be tricked into providing information beyond their intended use, and that security flaws can't be exploited to access confidential data or systems. HackerOne seamlessly integrates with your existing tools to enhance communication and collaboration across development, security, and IT teams. So, stay ahead of the game in the battle against cyber threats with HackerOne's attack resistance platform. Learn more at HackerOne.com. That's H-A-C-K-E-R-O-N-E.com. HackerOne.com. The stock market is constantly changing, and serious investors know that they need to modify their portfolio assets to fit the times. And now, with more than 50 million downloads, Justin Klein and Steve Peasley reaffirm their commitment to providing unbiased finance and investment guidance here on InvestTalk. 888-99-CHART. Hey, Justin and Luke. Uh, I was hoping to get your take on an interesting financial company that I found recently looking to start a position in Federal Agricultural Mortgage Corporation, ticker symbol AGM. Its members look good to me. So does the chart look like it's pulled back to maybe a buying point right now at 183 at the moving average. If you can take a look and let me know your thoughts. Maybe the debt is a little high, but because it's a lending company, it might be okay. It does have a growing dividend. This looks pretty nice. So let me know what you think. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Bye. All right, looking at AGM, the Federal Agricultural Mortgage Corp. And this is a name that has continues to to grow its earnings. 2016, it made nearly $5 per share. This year, it's supposed to make nearly $17 per share. And it looks like, yeah, it grew earnings every single year, even through the pandemic. Yields 2.5%, but the price continues to march higher 
And I think it's a good example of, yeah, not a huge dividend, but it's very consistent. Now, what do they do? It, it, it provides agricultural, real estate, and rural housing mortgage loans in the secondary markets. And these are loans that are guaranteed by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. So I kind of like this, Luke. It, it, it's, it's a name that is, it's, or their, their products certainly continue to be in demand. It's backed by the government. Uh, I don't see the price of farmland declining anytime soon. I don't know. I, I kind of like this, uh, at least the fundamentals. Now, the chart is starting to weaken here, um, so that would worry me a bit. But what are your thoughts? I recall one of our colleagues saying that we don't often like everything that people call in about, sure. but I think this is this is one I like. I, uh, I, I love their cash flow over the past three years has been has been flat, if not increasing. Their profitability has been stable. Um, over the past six, seven months, they've had earnings upgrades, Looks like they're issuing shares, but that's not a not a big deal. And I, I mean, I don't, I don't see anything I dislike from well, a fundamental you could say perspective. The debt levels, but you know, it's it's kind of part of their their business. Yeah, it's part of the, uh, it's part of the business. It's if you're gonna if this is if this is the 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 sector you want to invest in, the industry type you want to invest in, that's just par for the course. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a good way to get access to the farming industry um, and, and exposure because obviously their loans, if they're backed by farmland, farmland prices go up, those farm loans are going to continue to perform. Uh, and so I, I don't mind this. Uh, I will say the technicals have started to pull back. It was overbought uh, back going into kind of Christmas time and it's been steadily declining since, but it still remains in a broader uptrend. Let me give you a price for support level here. $162, $162. That's an area that I'd really want to pick this up. Now it's at 178 uh, in a near-term downtrend, and it looks like the downtrend will continue uh, for a, a, a little bit. Um, so that's where I'd pick it up, 162 Thanks for the call. Now, Luke, was it Wednesday when, or no, was it Wednesday that SEC approved? Approved Wednesday, ETF? trading Thursday. Trading Thursday. There you go. Okay. And in many ways, especially within those within the crypto space, said so this is a landmark event. And say that there's so much money flowing into this space. Well, first off, the price of Bitcoin didn't feel it because... It was approved around, I think it was at 45000 if I remember correctly. What was the price around that? When yeah, 45, 46 around there. Yeah. And if you recall it, actually, when the, the fake announcement went out, uh, it dumped. Because uh, the day before it was actually announced that it was, it was approved, there was someone hacked the, the X account, yeah. the Twitter account, yeah. and, and it, the price fell. Yeah. So, uh, and then it kind of stabilized knowing that that was a fake report, but it did eventually get approved. Uh, like you said, uh, the ETF started trading yesterday and everyone was saying the record amounts of flows into those funds, et cetera. But the price of Bitcoin is now down from this announcement to about 42,700 as, uh, as we speak now. And it hit a high of 49,000. So kind of a, in the technical terms, we call that a failed breakout and a reversal. So, uh, as I said yesterday, while I think 
there can be some merit to owning a bit of this in a portfolio at some point. Typically around events like this, not a good time to invest. Buy the rumors, sell the news. Uh, that is a very common, there's a reason people say it all the time because it's true the vast majority of the time, especially within the crypto space. But you know, I think the bigger question is, has this been or is this a watershed moment within governments that says the SEC is going to embrace crypto as a whole? Uh, and you know, I, I sent you something soon after, Luke, uh, uh, one of the statements from another SEC uh, uh, member. And she wrote a long dissertation about how this was a terrible thing to do. Um, so it's pretty clear that the SEC's hand was forced in some way uh, by the federal appeals court ruling last year. And while 10 Bitcoin ETFs, spot Bitcoin ETFs are trading now, I don't know if this is really going to change the way the SEC views crypto as a whole, and especially the Fed or the SEC chair, Gary Gensler, who still calls this the Wild West, which is rife with noncompliance and misconduct. I mean, that's that's certainly true. I think the statement that Gensler had when it was approved kind of was reminiscent for me of when your parents say they're not mad at you, they're disappointed in you. It kind of hurts a little bit more. Uh, you know they were they were they were as explicit as they could be in not endorsing crypto trading platforms intermediaries and and called them mostly non-compliant with federal securities laws, often having conflicts of interest. So I think the important takeaway from this is that an approval of an investment vehicle isn't an approval of an asset class, nor is it the regulator saying this is now safe for everybody to invest in. Yeah. And they even said, quote, while we approve the listing and trading of certain spot Bitcoin shares today, we did not approve or endorse Bitcoin. He said, called it primarily speculative, volatile asset that's also used for illicit activity, including ransomware, money laundering, sanction evasion and terrorist financing. And, you know, it's one of those things where everybody within the space uh, Bitcoin maxis, shall we call them? Uh, they got so riled up, so excited. It reminded me a lot of, uh, as I said yesterday, what happened when they approved the Bitcoin futures ETF and uh, back in 20, late 2021. And what happened? That was right near the peak. And it reversed massively all the way from, what was the high? 60-something thousand? 69 and it, it low, something. Yeah, and it a low last year. Uh, was it last year or 2022? Around, was it 12,000? Something like that. No, I think we so, got down to 16 or 17. Yeah. So you can see it's just very, very volatile. And it's pretty clear that uh, that volatility is not going to end with the approval of this. And what's interesting is that even the sponsors of these funds, like BlackRock, <laughs> they're saying that they, they don't recommend this. Uh, they're saying the offering is about providing a higher quality access vehicle to investors who want Bitcoin exposure. Would you define this type higher quality access? Uh, it's easier access, I yeah. would say. I mean, I think even more notably, Vanguard doesn't want to touch it. They said that these products do not align with our offer focused on asset classes such as equities, bonds, and cash, which we view as building blocks for a well-balanced long-term investment portfolio. So I think, again, bad faith actors and people who will profit from retail investors buying in 
want you to misconstrue what a Bitcoin ETF approval means. Mm-hmm. And not only are the regulators saying it doesn't mean we like it and it doesn't mean it's right for everybody, mm-hmm. but the industry is also saying, we don't think this is right for everybody, but if you ask, here you go. Yeah, they're misconstruing this as a full-throated endorsement and that this is now going to be brought into the fold of the traditional financial system. And I think it's pretty clear that uh, this is the regulators were in some ways forced, their hand was forced. Um, But that doesn't mean that in the future, their hand will continually be forced. It was just forced on this one particular issue. Now let's take another caller question from 888.99 chart that came in from the San Francisco Bay Area. This is Eileen calling in from the Bay Area. I just wanted to say I'm very sorry to hear about Steve. All of us listening to the show can tell just what a nice person he is, and we hope he's feeling much better soon. While I really wanted to call in about Steve, I also have a question I can ask about 529 plans. Just wondering if you have a rule of thumb where, as a child's getting closer to college, how much to put into safer investments versus ETFs. We used ScholarShare and we switched 50% last year into a safer investment called Principal Interest Plus. Our child's a senior and will start college in the fall. And while we want to keep funds safe, the Principal Plus has had a 2% return since the switch, while the rest of the account has had a 21% return. So we obviously wish Principal Plus offered more, and any insight you have on allocation is much appreciated. You all do such an excellent job with this show. It's as professional as anything coming out of CNBC, which really says a lot. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for the kind words uh, about Steve, and I've certainly passed on the message to him. Uh, and as well as thank you for the kind words about us being better than the CNBC, which, <laughs> frankly, I feel like it's a low bar, but... At least we're getting over that one. Uh, now, the 529 plan, uh, what your investment options are, they do vary depending on what state uh, it, it's set up with. Uh, I like that you, it sounds like your child is in uh, senior in high school, going to college next year. So the time horizon here is now very short, uh, especially for at least half a portfolio. So moving that into something more conservative makes a lot of sense. And I could even argue some, you should probably go even more than 50%. Uh, and, you know, just because those more, uh, more aggressive side did better last year, doesn't mean you made the wrong decision. That happens all the time. You never are going to time this perfectly. It's all going to line up. Uh, but you, so, you, because it could have easily been the opposite, right? Where that conservative did 2% and you, maybe you switch that in the beginning of 2022 and those more aggra- that a more aggressive part uh, was down 20% because it was all equities, right? Because the SP was down 20% that, uh, in 2022. So it's just, just timing more than anything. Uh, do you think she did anything wrong there, Luke? No, I don't. Volatility works both ways. So if you think about 529 plans, uh, which helps you save for, your, for, for educational expenses, people use it for their kids, um, which if you think of that similar to a retirement plan, you have a glide path. You have a period of time in which you can be more aggressive because if you do lose the capital, you have more time to try and earn it back. But as you're reaching the end of that life cycle, you've moved from trying to accumulate and grow what you have in that account and you're into the capital preservation because you need it. So no, I don't think you did anything wrong. Like Justin said, I, I agree. If if anything, maybe you would want to be more conservative with a larger slice of that. 
Um, but don't don't beat yourself up just because the unknowable happened because nobody knows how the, how the market's going to return. No one knows how stocks are going to go. No one knows how bonds are going to go. All you can do is prepare for what you should be preparing for. And in this case, it's having that money ready for your child uh, when they do go to college next year. Yeah, especially over that kind of one, two year time frame, it's very difficult to, to, to guess that. Uh, and, you know, the only thing I would say is take a look at that quote unquote conservative fund that you put in. I'm, I'm not sure what it was exactly. I have to look it up. But, you know, do you have other alternatives that maybe did a bit better, but are also more conservative? Did it only uh, return 2% because maybe it's a long duration bond fund that uh, struggled as interest rates generally went higher last year? Um, or, you know, should you should switch that into a shorter term bond fund, for example? Or should you move your 529 plan to a whole nother state 529 plan? Because you don't have to use any particular state. You can find the best one out there that has better options for you, investment options. And that's another uh, way to think about it as well. So uh, I don't think your decision was wrong, uh, but maybe the investment vehicles that uh, are available to you, you picked uh, the wrong conservative option or... Uh, you have the ability to move that and find a better one. <clears throat> now, Luke, we just started earnings season and we're going to get to this after the break, but uh, some of the major banks announced earnings this morning, JP Morgan, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, Citigroup, and together they earned about $140 billion in 2023 in total. That's a, up 11% from a year earlier. So, Earnings improved, but the bigger question will be, what does this mean or what what message are they sending about the overall consumer? Because as we know, the consumer matters most to the economy. And are we know things are deteriorating to a degree, but are they deteriorating to a worrying degree, I think is the big question. So we're going to get to that topic right after the break. But for now, Monday is a market holiday, so please tell your friends about a special podcast episode. We'll be presenting a new caller questions compilation, The Best of Steve Peasley. It's a packed podcast featuring your questions and answered by Steve. That's on Monday. I'm Justin Klein with Luke Guerrero. And we're ready to take your calls as we go into our final break. So if you're going to call, you want to do that right now at 888 chart Every investor is working to build a secure financial future. How they get there and when they get there, that depends on many variables. The more you learn about how the market works, the better your chances. So don't forget to call InvestTalk, 888-99-CHART. Now, before the break, Justin, you started to talk about something that I mentioned at the beginning of the show is particularly important in earnings season, which is bank earnings. And that's not just because the top line numbers and the projections tell you where we were and where we're going. But if you really dive in, you can see some interesting information. Now, first, the interesting thing that I saw was that each of the four major banks collectively had to set aside $9 billion to pay the special federal deposit insurance corp fee related to the failure of regional banks. Now, remember, that was just 10 months ago that that happened, 
regional banking crisis. It seems like seems like forever ago. But other than that, I think the biggest hints that we got from these earnings are about the state of consumers. Wells Fargo said that they saw some modest deterioration. Banks results show that consumers are borrowing more on their credit cards, carrying over high balances, falling behind on their payments in greater numbers. Car loans being a, a particular place where investors, sorry, uh, consumers are falling behind on their payments. So what do you think that says about the strength of the consumer spending side of the economy as we get deeper and deeper into Q1 in 2024? I think it clearly says that we're getting back to a more normal environment. Uh, I think a lot of this is a reversion to the mean. Yes, charge-offs are up, delinquencies are up, but they're coming off a very low base. Overall, consumers, I think, still remain relatively flush with cash, mainly because they have jobs. And wage gains outpaced inflation over the past summer for the first time in two years. So, you know, that's, a, that's one of the great things about inflation kind of ebbing back down to around the 3% level and on a six-month basis closer to a 2% level. And that's, and that's not just, oh, the Fed can stop raising rates, but also the individual. They're actually earning, they have more disposable income. And that's good for the overall, overall economy, their balance sheets, and thus bank balances. Now, higher interest rates are problematic. That is an issue, right? When people want to go out and borrow to buy a car, uh, to buy a home, it's more expensive. And you're already seeing that, especially in the car market. That's one thing. Car prices are going to fall big time. I've actually seen some numbers that recent uh, wholesale auctions on cars, prices are down 15% on a lot of models, 10 to 15%. So that's going to start hitting showrooms, and you're actually going to start to see major deflation in the auto market. And uh, I think that's the combination of those higher borrowing costs, but also these companies are you know, getting production back to more normal levels. So. A lot of this is reversion to the mean. And as you said, Wells Fargo says there's modest deterioration, but the average deposit balance per customer is still above pre-pandemic level. So to me, that's the most important thing is people still have money in the bank well more than they they did pre-pandemic where the economy was not great, but it was fine. And showing you the consumer is is still relatively strong. And, And the biggest issue is going to be uh, like you said, paying back the money for those FDIC deposits. Um, and so uh, that's going to be some special charge-offs. Now, next week, we get regional bank earnings. And I think that's going to be more interesting, actually, because that's going to really highlight more of the major problems within the potential within the banking sector, and that is commercial real estate. Yeah, no, that is certainly going to be interesting. I think, you know, a lot of people focus on the consumer side, but we learned some pretty interesting things on the corporate side too, specifically with the banks. You know, it was interesting in my opinion that investment banking revenue would picked up in the fourth quarter, uh, a further sign of, of potential economic strength on the horizon. Now, most of it was due to debt underwriting, 
which maybe shows that business investment, even in a high interest rate environment, isn't as depressed as some people might think. So as interest rates come down, CapEx could pick up even more. I think overall, bank earnings have been positive about future economic growth so far. Exactly. And a big reason why investment bank earnings did well in the fourth quarter is because financial conditions continue to ease. And that means there's more liquidity out there. There's more, uh, as you said, issuance of debt, which banks make fees on potential IPO cycle, which was really bad last year and looks to be bringing uh, coming back this year. So that could benefit as well. So overall, nothing really to worry about on the uh, bank earnings front so far. But we're early in the earnings season. Now, I'm Justin Klein with Luke Guerrero, and that completes another Invest Talk program. We thank you for listening, and we encourage you to tell your friends and family about our free podcast downloads, which you can find anytime at iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. And be sure to rate and review on iTunes as well. Independent thinking, shared success. This is Invest Talk. Enjoy your long weekend. Invest Talk is a trademark of KPP Financial. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program, it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them. Specifically, nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice, or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell security. Because such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis, and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. InvestTalk is a copyrighted program of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor firm which retains all rights.